0: Hi, Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf, but one thing we can say for sure these days is the Bible that was once regarded as the Good Book, capital G, capital B, is under a lot of attack. Well here's a uh, defense of it, coming through a series of books called The Politically Incorrect Guide To, and then fill in the blank, there's a lot of them, Politically Incorrect Guides, P-I-G. This one's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible written by Robert Hutchinson, who's a religion writer. He studied philosophy as an undergrad, got a P, uh, MA in Biblical Studies from Fuller Theological Seminary, and uh, several people comment on the book. On the back cover, David Limbaugh, who's a Christian guy, uh, Russia's brother, he says uh, Hutchinson does a stellar job in defending the reliability of the Bible and demonstrating its immense positive influence through history. A Dr. Moynihan, Medieval Studies at Yale, says uh, he's mounted an urgent, necessary, and sprightly defense. And somebody else says, comfortable and cocky atheists better brace themselves. (laughs) So this one takes on all sorts of issues, and I'm just going to do one chapter, but it talks about um, Mosaic Law, uh, Science and Christianity, Slavery in the Bible, which I've covered in another uh, podcast. Uh, The Old Testament on government. What about Jesus? What about lost gospels? Things like this. I want to focus, and these are all interesting topics, written very simply, easy to read. I want to focus on chapter 11, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, that brings to mind Thomas Jefferson, doesn't it? Listen to the... uh, one of the most biblically charged words ever enshrined in a political document, he said this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So do do you understand what he's saying there? I mean, it's something we've kind of glossed over in our society. I don't think it's being taught to the kids much these days. Human rights are not privileges that the state dispenses, or if it dispenses, of course it can take back, their gifts from God that no state, no dictator, no person in power can take away. That's a huge issue, isn't it? That's the key insight that Hutchinson says lies behind our American Revolution. It's not democracy or majority rule. It's the rights and where those rights come from. That doesn't, it's, And you don't get that idea from secular philosophy. You get it from biblical religion. And it says, we, we can go back to Genesis and see it there. God declares he made the human in his image and after his likeness. And that's what Paul says when he wrote in the Romans, that knowledge of God can be seen through creation and the law. Everything's written on the human heart. So this idea of self-evident truths written on the human heart didn't start with the French, the Enlightenment or Rene Descartes. It dates back to Paul. Paul says certain basic standards of morality can be known even without divine revelation. Where is that? Well, Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature observe the prescriptions of the law, they're a law for themselves even though they don't have the law. says the demand of the law, that's written in their hearts. So we're going to look at that in this chapter here. He says um, the people that where the founding fathers were steeped in the stories and values and ideas of the Bible. Now, were they all devoted Christians? Well, probably Jefferson and Franklin were not orthodox by any stretch of the imagination, but they weren't atheists. John Adams said this, The Bible contains the most profound philosophy, the most perfect morality, and the most refined policy that was ever conceived upon earth. It's the most republican book in the world. Not, not a capital R Republican like Republican and Democrat, but to uh, allow the idea of a republic. Rob religious faith was really important to these people. I mean, think about Washington. When he took command of the Continental Army, Hutchinson points out that he ordered each day which should begin with a formal prayer. Uh, there was, he talks about a philosopher, Michael Novak, who has a book that came out in 2002 that that revolutionary political philosophy that was there, it came about, was based on two primary sources. One was a deeply rooted biblical religiosity that said all these human rights are gifts from God. And number two, there was a plain reason that we could understand that grew out of practical experience in self-government. So he said the founders knew that if you didn't have a fear of God, where religion would kind of hold the reins and hold back arrogant and powerful men, that tyranny wasn't ever very far away. Here's what Jefferson said. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we've removed their only firm basis? What is it? He says it's a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift of God. Washington agreed with that. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity religion and morality are indispensable supports. He said, this is Washington again, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Alex de Tocqueville, that French aristocrat who toured America, he said, for the Americans, the idea of Christianity and liberty are completely mingled. It's almost impossible to get them to conceive of one without the other. So he says, if you look at the Hebrew scriptures and then the teachings of Jesus, the, the idea is that the God hears the cry of the poor and that the, the, the smallest person, the least valuable person, God is listening to him. Well, nobody in the ancient world believed this. Plato, for example, Hutchinson says, insisted that the gods create superior human beings who are fit to rule. They were called the guardians. And then you had the inferior people, and their job was to be ruled. And those inferior people didn't really have very many rights. Well, there's people of Israel that rejected that completely. Isaiah talked about, woe to those who enact evil statutes. And it says, you don't want to deprive the needy of justice. That's bad. That's in Isaiah 10. Jeremiah said, wicked men are found among my people. They become great and rich they do not plead the cause of the orphan they don't defend the rights of the poor and god says i will punish this so these sentiments were sentiments were unprecedented way back in humanity because it's saying here in isaiah and jeremiah and other places that the creator of the universe god himself will hold unjust rulers accountable for violating the rights of the poor but jesus even went further than that besides taking care of the poor He said anybody who's an outcast, any lowlife in this world, that would be prostitutes or lepers or people that are rip-off artists and liars and tax collectors and foreigners and even pagan soldiers. All of these people were welcomed into God's kingdom. He emphasized the fundamental equality and the dignity of all human beings in the eyes of God. Well, how do we know that? Well, Jesus told stories that we still get such a powerful uh, kick out of today. So he tells the one about the man, this is in the Gospel of Luke, a man giving a banquet, and he sent to certain people that got invited, and they all had excuses. Oh, I can't come, I can't come. So he sends out, and he says, go in the streets, bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. And he says, bring them all in. So Jesus' uh, radical egalitarianism extended to everybody, women and criminals, and even the Roman soldiers. I mean, think about the time period there. Jews didn't speak with women, but Jesus was always talking to them. Even a woman of the Samaritan background, nothing worse for the Jews of that day. But you can tell he, he opens his arms to everybody. In fact, there's that famous story of the centurion servant that asked Jesus to heal the sick. And he says, Lord, you don't have to come. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels. He says, I say to you, not even in Israel, have I found such great faith. Later, Peter, in the Acts of the Apostles, says, I see God shows no partiality. In every nation, whoever fears him and acts uprightly is acceptable to him. So there's that universal appeal, that egalitarianism. So if that's true, of course, the message is that we should be treating each other equally. And that's what happened in the early Christian community. And uh, the author here, uh, Hutchinson, talks about Rodney Stark, who's a historian. And he says this thing about being open to people of all races and all classes explained the phenomenal rapid growth of the Jesus movement in the ancient world. It was not just slaves and uneducated, Christianity boomed. And if it boomed, it must have appealed to all social classes. I mean, after all, Jesus had some rich and influential followers. Right, he hung out with Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, so Christianity was open to everyone—men, women, pagans, Jews, slaves, freemen—because it said there was that fundamental human equality in the eyes of God. The Hutchinson wants to spend just a minute on the role of women. He said Christianity was undoubtedly the most f- pro-female religion in history. He had fo- Jesus had followers, who are women. But women were active leaders in the early Christian church. Paul talks about Phoebe being a deacon of a church. He mentions Mary, who's worked hard, and Junia, my relative and fellow prisoner, and, and Andronicus. That says they were prominent among the apostles. I'm talking about a woman, Junia, and her husband. Andronicus, prominent among the apostles. So it says Christians, uh, Christians accorded women such great status that said, even early on, Christianity rejected abortion, infanticide, and divorce. So, because they rejected divorce, that gave women greater social status. That's because it conferred upon women an economic and security that Jewish and pagan women lacked. I mean, in Judaism, a woman who had no right to divorce, could be just dismissed by their husbands. In Roman law, a woman might have the right to divorce her husband, but no way of supporting themselves if they did so. But Christianity supported women. They rejected the idea of divorce. They rejected abortion and infanticide. In fact, infanticide, which tended to be practiced, especially against female babies, that was forbidden. And the fact that all human infants possessed a right to life, then they were protected. Well, the ancient world didn't really have any true conception of human rights. It said there were very few voices in the ancient world that discerned any distinction between what was legal and what was moral. And It said Christian thinkers then developed a theory of human rights separate from the power of the state. They called it natural law. That's what they came up with, the early Christian philosophers. So what's natural law? The idea that there's an objective moral order that's been established by God, and it stands above mere human law. And in fact, you have to judge human law against it. Frankly, this is how they finally got the Nazis. At the end of World War II, they grabbed some of the Nazis, put them on trial. And the Nazis said, oh, who are you to judge us? Just because you won the war. We had our ideas of right and wrong. And you have your right ideas of right and wrong. Who's to say? And the judges and the prosecutors said, we will say, because you're breaking not your own law, not American law, you're breaking that natural law, the idea that there's something beyond human law, and that's how we're going to judge you. So that's been enshrined in the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence. Human rights are not derived from the whims of the state, but from the creator. Thank goodness, huh? This notion of this law that was above human law was expressed by Thomas Aquinas, It was ratified by John Calvin and then summarized really well by Sir William Blackstone in his commentaries on the laws of England. So who cares about that? Well, that Blackstone was one of the chief sources used by Jefferson and the other colonialists in crafting the new American government. What did Blackstone say? Well, real briefly, civil law is given not to create rights, but to protect the pre-existing natural rights that people had. So in other words, we're given rights by God. So what's the point of civil law to protect those? Pretty good. So modern people sometimes will think about uh, things like the Renaissance. Oh, that's, that's when humanism and enlightenment came about. But in terms of human rights, Hutchinson says, and the rights of women, it was actually a step backward. Why? Well, think about the Renaissance, he says, was a return to Roman and Greek civilization and their ideas, and actually rejected medieval Christianity. But it was that medieval Christianity, we just mentioned Thomas Aquinas, that championed what we have today, what we'd call human rights. I mean, what's going on at the same time? you got Machiavelli. Uh, He says politics have to be divorced from moral concerns. What does Hobbes say? He writes something called the Leviathan. He wants a strong... Totalitarian government—that's the Leviathan. That's the way to save people from themselves. So he says the only way you're going to get peace and civilization, Hobbes thought, was for individuals to surrender their rights to a totalitarian state, maybe a like an absolute monarch. But thank goodness the American founders didn't accept that, of you know total obedience to the state. Then there's uh, Jeremy Bentham. He rejected the idea of natural rights completely. Bentham thought that the only rights that really existed were rights that the government created. No, that's not what, thank goodness, that's not what the American founder said. So, as a wrap-up to this chapter, Hutchinson says the ancient world had no concept of what we today call human rights. Where did that idea come from, that we treasure today? From the assumptions declarations of the Old Testament, the biblical prophets, the teachings and deeds of Jesus the early church community, and as the Christian church began to think through the political implications that every human being was a child of God, then lawyers began thinking All right, if that's the case, then there are God-given rights that can't be taken away by government officials. So as these ideas started developing, the Christian tradition of natural rights developed into a theory of self-government, and that's how the founders of the American Republic got going. So the modern philosophers like Hume and Hobbes and Rousseau and Marx rejected biblical Christianity, and guess what? They rejected that theory of human rights. So it's a good thing we have people who use biblical thoughts as they put together our government. Anyway, I think you'd like the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible. Uh, Very well done. Uh, Robert Spencer on the front says it's a dynamite demolition of the biblical experts who tell us that the holy book is untrustworthy and immoral to boot. Not the case. So hope you uh, enjoyed this podcast and uh, I'll be back. We'll do another one. Thanks.